Tom Burgess is a newspaper writer. I ran across a remarkable article that he wrote. Uh, He wrote it for the San Diego Union Tribune. And it was an investigative study that he had done on our Navy SEALs. And in doing so, he wrote this article. Here's the, the title, Navy SEALs Go Through Hell. He was talking about the culminating week of their training. It's called Hell Week. Listen to what Burgess wrote. They came up to this ensign and they poured a glass of ice water down his back. And then they threw another in his face. The ensign had drifted off to sleep for a brief moment in the chow line. After five sleepless nights, he opened his eyes for a second, just long enough to utter a dull, thank you, sir. A moment later, his eyes rolled upward again, and then they closed. His head went back down again, and he didn't touch his meal. Burgess went on to write, it's called Hell Week. It's part of the Navy's basic underwater demolition school where sailors are turned into SEALs, Sea, Air, and Land Commandos. By undergoing grueling regimen of sleepless days and nights, sensory overload, physical testing, these men are transformed into some of the toughest human beings on the planet. He goes on to write, and I I would ask you just to bear with me. I want to read this because I think it's pertinent to where we are this morning in our study. The class commences in October with a 300-yard swim, and it builds up in intensity all the way to Hell Week. This final period of torturous physical and psychological training begins on Sunday night. And here's how it begins. Lights flash and our candidates are awakened by an instructor screaming. Next to one ear, a machine gun with blanks is fired and a jet spray from a garden hose is digging into the other ear. Listen to every detail. We have a mission tonight, is the shout of the commander. The mission includes exercising and then lying on cold steel wet plates installed on a nearby pier. On Monday morning after a sleepless night, the six-men teams are ordered to run races with 250-pound Zodiac rubber assault boats balanced on their heads. On Tuesday, with less than an hour of sleep the night before, they now have to row these Zodiac boats to the Mexican waters and back, 18 miles journey. Most men at least acknowledge later drifting in and out of consciousness on this trip. They learn to sleep during mealtimes. On Wednesday, the men continue the racing with the boats bouncing on their heads, their combat boots sinking into the soft sand. They run throughout the week, including a midnight run on Wednesday, out into the cold pounding surf where they will lay all night. Every 10 minutes throughout this night, they'll stand up to get the full effect of the wind. After the surf torture, the chance to disenroll is available and awaits each student. All he has to do is ring a certain bell three times and say the words, I quit. By Thursday afternoon, everyone is hallucinating. By Friday, the week is concluded. And the new seals are lined up to be checked by a doctor. Now, I want to share something with you, a quote that that will bring this into focus as we move into a new sermon series today from the book of James. But look at these words with me. Only in terms of the ugliness of war can punishment like this make any sense. 
By pushing these men to the very brink of insanity during times of peace, the Navy is giving them the best chance to be ready to face the cruelty of real war if it comes. Church family, I want to tell you that is almost exactly what God does in your life and in mine. He sends trials our way. God is training us. I need you to hear this as we move toward our text. It doesn't last a week. It lasts a lifetime. And he's preparing us for a very real war. He sends us trials to train us and shape us into the image of his son Jesus. With his very first words of this epistle, this letter, James reminds his suffering brothers and sisters that they should not be surprised when they experience trials and intense periods of testing. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of James, and we'll look there together at this incredibly unique book. And for the next 13 weeks, we're going to walk verse by verse through the book of James. I think it's going to be an exciting study. It'll be a wonderful time of just letting God's Word speak to us, and so I pray that we would see together uniquely out of this. Now, let me say right up front as you're turning to the book of James, throughout this 13-week series, if you have questions about the book of James, just keep them to yourselves. No, I'm kidding. You can, you can ask our deacons. No, I'm kidding there too. If you've got questions, write them down. Let's talk about them. We're going to move toward in our study in Sunday school, the book of James, later this quarter. It's in your book. We're studying Galatians now and then James. But I wanted to get a jump start so that I could just begin to walk through the book. L- let me say a couple of things right up front. It's a unique book. It's incredibly practical, very application-oriented. It's in your face. It's not doctrinal in the sense that it's laying out a treatise of what we should believe, but really how we should behave. In fact, some commentators struggle with the book. Martin Luther, who wrote a commentary on Galatians, uh, which really was part of the catalyst for the, the Reformation, came to the book of James and didn't like it. He called it a strawy epistle. He said it was just lighter than what he was comfortable with because it didn't have doctrinal meat, and yet it's one of the most powerful books. I want to read some quotes to you, if I can, from some various commentators, pastors, and authors, and maybe you'll see some things about this book as we move into it. Dr. David Jeremiah said the book of James is about the integrity of faith. It's about real faith. That's why I've entitled this whole series, Real Faith Works. We're going to talk about real faith, and we're going to talk about how it helps us through this life, but how it also works. So we're going to look at that. Let me give you another one about the theme of the book. Chuck Swindoll said this, the theme of the book of James is that real or genuine faith gets real results, genuine results. It produces real fruit. Let's share another one. John MacArthur said the book of James is almost like a commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you take Jesus' words on how to live your life uh, there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the whole book of James really is almost like an unpacking of what Jesus had taught. Pretty amazing. And I want you to see this. Warren Wearsby, a great, great Bible scholar and expositor, said this. The book of James was written simply to confront the spiritual immaturity of the listeners. So as we look at this book together, church family, I'm going to call upon you to grow up in some areas. Just as the writer of the book shares with us practical truth on how we should live and how our faith should impact our marriages and our lives and our relationships and our evangelism to the community, the way that we approach life, 
I, I hope that we will see that this is a calling to grow up. Now, it's pretty powerful to think about this book. If there was an Old Testament book like it, it would be the book of Proverbs. Just these short statements of truth that guide us in the way that we should think and act. And James really is, is sort of like that. Well, he starts out, let's just begin in, in verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of interesting. That's all he says about himself. I'm a bond servant, a slave. So who is he? Uh, what James are we talking about? There are at least five Jameses in the New Testament that we know of. Let me kind of walk through a few of them. The Bible describes James, who is the father of Judas, not Iscariot. Well, he didn't write this book. There's also James that's kind of famous. He's James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. And uh, he was the first of all of the apostles to be martyred. He was martyred in AD 44. He didn't write this book. And then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and there's another James called James the Lesser. He is called that because he's not the J James that we know of, the, the, the greater, the son of Zebedee. Well, neither of these wrote the book. In fact, some say that these two are the same guy. Who wrote this book? Who are we talking about? This is James, the son of Joseph and Mary, the brother of Jesus. He becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. If you were to study the book of Acts, you'll find out of his prominence there. He was a very spiritual man. In fact, I found it interesting. I promise we'll, we'll move through the text together. But just for background's sake, he was a very spiritually minded man, a very pious man. His nickname in books that are outside the Bible describing his life is Camel Knees. They said he was calloused upon his knees because of the time invested in prayer. And so James was a man who was uh, very, very easily able to poke his chest out with pedigree. I mean, he's a man who's noted for his spiritual uh, piety. He's a man who's noted for his leadership in the church. And by the way, he is a half-brother to Jesus Christ. And yet he said, this letter is from James, a bondservant. Isn't it interesting? I, I wouldn't have written that if I were in James' shoes. I would have probably written something like this, James of the tribe of Judah, of the house and lineage of David, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But he didn't say that. What did he say? I'm a slave, a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. He has humility. And who does he write to? If you will, look on with me. He says, I'm writing here to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. So he's writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Jews that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing, this word scattered is di diaspora or diaspora. And, and you can take that word as simply a scattering. We know that it happened in Judah and in Israel uh, many years before, 722 with the Assyrians and then 586 with the Babylonians. And by the time that James writes, there are Jews scattered out in every major city in the known world. And he's writing to them because their life is hard. In fact, one of the commentators said this as I was reading. He said, James writes to these scattered Jews because their life right now, as it is, stinks. They are 
persecuted because they are believers in Jesus Christ. They're hated by the Greeks because of their morality. They're hated by the Romans because they are not uh, following along and worshiping Caesar. And they're hated by their fellow Jews who have not yet come to believe Jesus is the Messiah. They are ostracized by their families. They are disowned by their friends. They have no economic benefit in life. And because of that, these scattered folks that are dealing with difficulty and hardship are finding themselves in desperate need of some direction, much like Peter wrote to them before, as we saw that in our past study. These folks are praying for the Lord to come back. I mean, they're saying uh, from the, the, the beginning, he hits the ground running to speak to their situation, and he says to them some things that will speak to their hardship, but I believe will speak to ours. I want to give you five steps this morning directly from our text that deal with, for us, how to deal with difficult times. Consider your life right now. Are you dealing with some suffering, some struggle, some hardship? I I think that this speaks to all of us. I have this week in appointments in my office and phones and text messages dealt with all kinds of trouble. People are dealing with hardship. Lean in close with me for a second, church. I don't know of a more important message for you to hear and understand because this may be the most difficult thing for me as a pastor personally in my Christian walk to deal with. What am I talking about? Responding to trials. Responding to suffering. Responding to difficulty. And I believe that the writer here has got somebody's address in the letter that he's sending out. You know, we get so worked up in the trials that we face. We, we oftentimes make mountains out of molehills and we just respond and react to things in an overload and we're out of control and James speaks to that. As we get worked up about those trials, here's the reality. For the Christian, it's not an option. Just like for the Navy SEAL, they go through all their torturous training so that they'll be prepared when the real battle comes, and all of us are facing real battles. So let's read through our text for the day, and then we're going to walk through these five steps. James, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing 
and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us words of truth that would minister deeply and give us handles on how to approach trials and testing. Father, I pray that we would learn to live with patient faith and endurance, that we would receive that victory from you, that commendation from you. And I pray that you would receive glory and honor from our lives as we face trials. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people together said, amen. Amen. Step number one. Here he says, consider it joy when you face trials. So here's step number one. Celebrate the reason behind your trials. Celebrate the reason behind your trials. Now, I want you to follow along with me because as we work through this, I want you to begin to apply these five steps to every trial of your life. You see, trials come in a lot of ways. Listen with me. Think about the worst possible time of your life. Think of the worst trial that you've ever faced in your life. Maybe you're in that right now. How joyful were you? Because James here says, consider it an opportunity for joy. I I almost want to become indignant and say, James, who do you think you are? Why would he say that? I mean, James, I got this diagnosis with this prognosis, and you're telling me to be joyful. James, the person that I love the most has left me, and you're telling me I should consider this an opportunity for joy. James, I've lost my job, and I'm absolutely at wit's end financially, and I do not know what to do. And you're telling me to rejoice? Here's what I want you to see right off the bat. James is not talking about your feelings. He's talking about an act of your will. He's not talking about your feelings. He's talking about a deliberate choice. He's talking about a mindset. He's talking about a focused emphasis on joy. And as this unfolds, he's not just talking about pious, positive thinking. I want to dismiss that right off the bat. He's talking about considering it as an opportunity for joy for some very real reasons. So you need to celebrate the reason behind your trial. You see, I want you to know this. It's commanded. This is in the imperative tense. He says the mood here is you consider it joy, an opportunity for joy when you face various trials. It it is just as firm as thou shalt or thou shalt not. I mean, you think about the Ten Commandments. Well, this is another commandment. Consider it an opportunity for joy when you face various trials. Kind of interesting. It's an act of your will. What, What he's saying is this. Your outlook will determine your outcome. But Scott, how do I start with that mindset? I I want you to see somebody else that did this. The Apostle Paul said these words in 2 Corinthians 7, I am exceedingly joyful in all my tribulation. Now this is a guy who's been snake bitten and shipwrecked. He's been imprisoned and beaten. He has been over and over again run out of towns. And he says, I am exceedingly joyful in all my tribulation. That's not a feeling. That's not a a phony faking it. No, the Apostle Paul was acting upon his will. He was choosing. Think about this. Notice the word when they come. 
He said, consider an opportunity for joy when you face. He doesn't say if you face, if you encounter a trial. He's not saying, hey, by the way, if a trial comes your way, this is how you should respond. No, he says it's going to come. And he uses the word various. We get the word variegated from it. It means many different types, many different kinds, many different ways, shapes and sizes. Some of you are facing trials that to you seem like they're overwhelming. To somebody else, maybe not. But all of us will face trials. They come in medical, financial, emotional, and relational ways. And I want you to hear this too. This is not a popular mindset. There are circles in today's Christianity that say very simply this. If you have the right frame of mind, then you'll never have a bad day in your life. (laughs) That's wishful thinking, not biblical thinking. Would you agree with that? Because some of you have tried to grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to trust the Lord. And life kicked you in the teeth. All of us have been there at different times, but I want you to see that that kind of thinking offers false hope. It's demonic. It's evil. It sets people up for failure when they think, well, if my life's not perfect and everything's not going along smoothly, then maybe there's something wrong with me or with my faith. Homer Kent is a pastor and a commentator, said these words. I want you to see them. Totally foreign to him was the curious modern notion that becoming a Christian will make your life easier that all your problems will disappear, and the prospect for every believer in this life is that they'll live happily ever after. It's just not true. It's not the reality of what we face. Just like these Jewish believers, you and I, we are scattered people, but we're not the sheltered people. The, The rain falls on the just and the unjust. All of us will face trials. I've taken 15 minutes almost to just set the stage to let you know trials are coming. And you need to be prepared to face them. So step one is for you to celebrate the reason for the trials. And our text begins to give us some indication. What does it mean to consider this an opportunity for joy? What does that even mean? Let me share with you the words of Philip Yancey, another writer. By those who rejoice, the apostle did not intend a grin and bear it or act tough like nothing happened attitude. No trace of that kind of attitude can be found in Christ's Christ's response to suffering or in Paul's. It's not a masochistic hint to enjoy the pain. Rejoice in suffering doesn't mean that Christians should act happy about tragedy and pain when they feel like crying. Such a view distorts honesty and true expression of feelings. Christianity is not phony. It was important for me to set that up because I want to give you the end of this quote from Philip Yancey because I don't want us to be phony. I don't want us to just put on a happy face for the world and lie about it. That's what the world has come to church looking for something real and honest. And if we're not real and honest, then they're going to come here and find that we're faking it like they are. But there's a deeper purpose for the way that we handle our trials. Look at these words from Philip Yancey. The Bible spotlight is is on the end result, the use God can make of suffering in our lives. Before he can produce those results, he first needs our commitment to trust him. I think it's an incredible thing. The Bible spotlight is on the end result. You see, that's what God is working for in your life. God is working through the trials and the testing of our lives so that we'll be prepared. It's like the point of the Navy SEAL training of Hell Week. Why do they go through all of that rigorous torture? So that they'll be prepared, the end result. Think about this. The process is absolutely awful. 
I read something staggering. I was kind of doing some study on Navy SEALs after I read that article, and this amazed me. Do you realize statistically a Navy SEAL has a much higher probable chance of dying in training than in combat? The numbers bear it out. And for you and for me, God allows trials to come into our lives that will shape us and form us and make us into the kinds of people that we need to be to press us toward our faith in Him. God works that way. His concern is the end product, being spiritually mature, being conformed to the image of Jesus. And by the way, if being conformed to the image of Jesus is for us the end goal, then we ought to look at the example of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured suffering. He endured suffering all the way to the cross. And it wasn't about feelings, it was an act of volitional will. Do you think Jesus laughed on the cross? Do you think he just put on a happy face and smiled? The physical torture of the cross of Calvary is almost unimaginable. And the spiritual weight and the spiritual pain is absolutely beyond our comprehension. And yet Jesus endured it, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. You see, he celebrated the reason for the trials. The Bible tells us that we will suffer for a little while, but our suffering here on earth is light in comparison to the weight of eternal glory. And so if you're going through something right now, begin to stop and say, God, what is it that you're wanting to do? What is it that you're wanting to shape in me? What is it that you're wanting to pour in me through this trial? It begins to give us a renewed perspective. Celebrate that end result. It's an act of will. Consider it an opportunity for joy. Step number two, know what God has in mind. Know what God has in mind. Look, if you will, at verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. For you know, and then the testing of your faith. Church family, can I say this to you? God always tests faith. God always tests faith. It's not new. We see it in the life of Abraham. We see it in the life of Joseph. We see it in Jesus' life as he goes through the temptations. We understand that God has used in our lives trials to shape us. Think about this. Tested faith produces patience. He uses the word endurance, but I think we could call this patience. That we are able to wait and we're able to make it through. You want to tell me about your faith? I'll ask you a simple question. You want to know how much, if I wanted to know how much faith you have, I'm going to ask you, how patient are you? Uh oh. I think I started meddling. You're not going to like this. You want a faith that will give you everything you wanted in life. You want to measure your faith? How patient are you? How long will you wait? What will you put up with? Where is your mindset? Is your will set on trusting God? I mean, we could go and look at the examples. Abraham went through a four-question test over his lifetime. Abraham, I want you to get up and go from where you are to a place I'll show you. Where are we going, God? I'm not going to tell you. I mean, the questions were where, when, how, and why. Where are we going, God? I'll tell you when you get there. And then he waited for years. He had a house back home. Now he's living in a tent. And the question is, when, God? He had to wait. He had to mature. And then, you're going to have a baby. He said, that's impossible, God. 
And the Bible says in Romans 4 that he believed that God could bring life from death. Her womb was dead, and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. I believe that was where we see the, the faith of Abraham to salvation. Is he said, God, I trust you. And then when that promised son came, the last and hardest question on the final exam of his life comes in Genesis 22, where he says, sacrifice that son to me. And he said, oh God, why? Why would you ask me to do that? Nevertheless, he took the boy and he took the wood and he took the knife and they went up to the mountain for the sacrifice, trusting that God would provide. You see, God always tests faith. Go with me very, very quickly to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. This is a picture in the psalmist's life of how we wait on the Lord. It's a powerful example of patient faith. Psalm 40, beginning in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and heard my cry. He inclined. I love that language. He lifted me out of the pit of despair and out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground, steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. And look at this. Many will see what he's done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. I I waited patiently on the Lord. So there's a season of time where he's waiting. And he waited patiently for the Lord, and the Lord came through. And when the Lord came through, it led him to worship, Brother West. I'm so thankful for that. Isn't that powerful? It says, he put a new song in my mouth. And then he said, by the way, real worship that has come from patient faith will lead to evangelism. He said, many people are going to see, and they'll put their trust in God. When you and I wait patiently and faithfully on the Lord, that is an opportunity for God to get glory. Listen, church. Listen, there is no other time in your life that you have more to say to a watching world than when you're going through a trial. Because you can't fake it then. When you're going through a trial and you're going through a difficulty and you wait patiently on the Lord, it's like a megaphone before a lost world. It says many people will put their faith, their trust in the Lord. I love that. You see, trials come to teach me to wait. The prophet Isaiah said these words, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You know the verse, it's pretty famous, they'll mount up on wings like eagles, they'll run and not grow weary, they'll walk and not grow faint. You wait on God and you'll get strength that you never had before. You see, that's part of the process of going through these trials. So let it grow, it says, when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I love this, the word is teleos. It's the same word that Jesus used when, or a root, when he said tetelestai. It is finished. It means finished or complete. We we have translated it here perfect. And and maybe if we're not careful, we think, well, I'm just going to grow and wait on the Lord, and sooner or later I'll be perfect. Now, that won't happen this side of heaven. But what it means is you'll be mature. It means that you will grow to a place of fully developed endurance. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The writer of Hebrews said that. And this is the key to maturing. Think about that. Now, look at verse 5, and we're going to see step 3. We're going to move through these pretty quickly. In verse 5, we see some interesting things. He tells us here that we need to begin to ask for something. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Here's step three. Pray for God's resources to help you in the trial. 
Pray for God's resource. Celebrate the reason. Know what God has in mind. He's producing maturity in you. And then pray and say, God, I need your wisdom to make it through this trial. Now, how many of you pray in the middle of storms? Some of y'all are lying. Some of y'all are thinking about lunch. I do. But I know what you pray. You pray, oh, Lord, stop it. <laughs> Lord, deliver me from the storm. Lord, end the storm. Lord, take the storm away. Does James say that we should do that? James doesn't say pray that the storm will go away. He says consider it an opportunity for joy and then pray for wisdom. I've got to be honest with you. I struggle with a certain type of person. All right? I've had them in other churches that I've served. I don't know that we have any of them here. Let me just make that clear. People that go through storm after storm after storm and trouble after trouble after trouble and trial after trial after trial and there's always drama in their life and they never learn a lesson. They waste all their storms. They don't gain any wisdom. And that's why they keep going back. James said, if you're going through a storm, pray and ask God for his resource. Pray. He's a generous God and if you pray, he'll give it to you. It says he won't rebuke you. You can ask God for wisdom in the middle of the storm. It's okay to ask why, but it's more wise for you to ask for wisdom. Say, God, I need your wisdom because wisdom comes from the Lord. Can I just say this to you? Those people that are doing that get disheartened and they say things like this. Pastor, he may answer your prayers, but he never answers mine. And I can promise you. And I, I just mean this as sincerely as I can. There is almost nothing more pitiful and sad and disturbing than a bitter old Christian. And that doesn't mean in age, but just through life. A bitter Christian who looks at life through the lenses of bitterness. Who have never learned wisdom in the middle of storms. Wisdom comes from God. They've never grown through patience. In endurance through trials and testing and trust. He says, if you need wisdom, ask God and he will not rebuke you for asking. How do I ask? That leads us to step number four. Pray in faith. Pray in faith. Look at verse six. He says, but when you ask, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave on the sea. It's blown and tossed by the wind. The prerequisite to gaining wisdom in the midst of a trial is faith in God. If you don't trust him, you're not getting anything. I, I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what. I mean, I, I could use more, more examples. Our time is fleeting, but think about men like Job. None of us have suffered to the level that he has, I don't think. I mean, Job lost all of his children. He lost all of his servants. He lost all of his wealth. He lost in a strained relationship with his wife and then ultimately lost his health. And we find him sitting out at the gate of the city, scraping sores off of his body. I mean, he is in a wretched place. And Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Because he knew that even in the midst of the storm, the wisest thing that you could do is turn to God. He didn't have to understand all of it. He didn't have answers for all of it. And sometimes we look, but James said, consider it all joy, an opportunity for rejoicing when you face various kinds of trials. Not if, when. 
And when you do, ask God if he would give to you wisdom. Why? The whole purpose of the trial, God has in mind your maturity. He wants to grow you up. Joseph would be the same way. Joseph came to the end of his life with his brother standing before him. He said, you intended this for evil, but God has used it for good. God has the end game in mind. Suffering well means that we trust suffering well means that we trust God. I can trust him and ask him for wisdom in the middle of the trial. And one more thing I need to say very very quickly. Do you have any comprehension of the depth of God sympathizing with your suffering? You know when when people suffer and they blame God I don't know that they've thought through the depth of his sympathy in their suffering. Listen to these words. It was a a book entitled Christian Letters to a Post-Christian World. Whatever reason God has chosen to make man as he is, limited in suffering, subject to sorrows and death, I want you to remember something. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his own creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He has exacted nothing from man that is not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the horrors of pain and humiliation and defeat and despair and death. He was born in poverty. He died in disgrace and yet he saw it all as well worth it. You see, Jesus Christ today knows exactly what you're going through. Hallelujah. That would be a good place for you to join me in a chorus of amen. Some of you, that may not have brought relief. Some of you may say, well, if he knows what I'm going through, then why is he letting me go through it? Because he's going through it with you. And it's shaving off of your life those things that are keeping you bound to this earth and loosening your grip on this earth so that you can be strengthened in your faith and in your endurance so that you'll suffer for a little while. I mean, we'll live on this earth 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Who knows? We don't have any one more breath promised to us. But while we are here, we will face trials. We will face temptations. We will face struggles. But praise God, this life is a blip on the radar screen of eternity and the eternal weight of glory that awaits us is marvelous and God is preparing us for those days. If you're facing a difficulty, I want you to celebrate the reason for those trials. Keep in mind what God has in mind. Go through these steps and think through how you can ask God for His resources to help you in the midst of it. Let me give you the fifth step. Evaluate your trial. Evaluate your trial. I I love this, and I'll just summarize it for time's sake. He talks about the poor and the rich. If you look at verses 9 through 11. And he says the poor are blessed because they already are trusting in God. And he says, in essence, the rich at some level have to find themselves struggling through their blessing because they're going to be humbled. You know, ultimately, trials, trials equalize the family of God. I told you that you needed to pray for God's resources. Some of you rely on your own. You face a trouble and you say, who do I write the check to? How do I get out of this? Can I tell you this, church? Rich people die of cancer every day. And not one of them are 
carrying a U-Haul behind their hearse. They're not taking it with them. God's resources will sustain you. You need to evaluate your trial and just realize that whatever you're going through, God has what you need. And it will give glory to him for you to trust him in the midst of your trial. It's not if, but when you get tested. And one of the best things for a rich person is a trial that would show them the temporal sense of their possessions. Life really is like a vapor. I heard that all of my life when I was young. I would read the words of James, life is like a vapor. And I was like, no, it's not. This first 20 years has taken forever. Did you ever feel that? Some of you are going, I just want to get past this stage and get on to the next. And some of you are going, I just want it to slow down. I'm telling you, I'm a little farther down the tracks now. I'm not, you know, I'm not at the end of the tunnel, but I can see the tunnel coming. We've moved through life. Life really is like a vapor. And the trials that we face, consider your reaction to the trial. Are you using the trials of your life for your good and for God's glory? Because when we do, a lost and watching world will come to faith in our great and generous God. I'm looking so forward to walking through this practical book as we just step by step think through these things. But I want to tell you this. This morning, I don't want us to lose sight at all, at all, of the fact that this message had somebody's life written all over it. Some of you are facing trials, or you're going to face one. And I'm praying that you would walk through biblical wisdom on how to deal with it that you would trust the Lord in the midst of it. You would pray in faith and ask Him for His resources. Evaluate it and say, how can I maximize this for the glory of God? Now, our invitation this morning, as our musicians are making their way this way, as our instrumentalists and vocalists come, we, we have two matters of business to take care of. One is that you would respond to this message. Over and over again, the Word of God is given to us for response. It calls out from us response. And so today, if you're going through a trial or a struggle, we would love to pray with you if we can. And if you need the ultimate resource, a relationship with Jesus Christ, then today you can have that. And we want to encourage that. We'll have encouragers here, just prayer partners, members of our staff and others that would love to share with you how you can be saved from the struggles of this world by having a living relationship with God, eternal life. And maybe you're going through a trial and you just need somebody to to hug your neck and to pray with you. We'll do that as well. But the final thing, I want every single person, every person before you leave, to say yes to the Lord in some way. And we have cards that are here. We had cards in your bulletin. If you're already serving in a ministry area, we've asked that you would jot that down. Just simply say, this is a recommitment. I'm serving to sing in the choir, to work as an usher or a greeter or a teacher or in some way as administrative help in the office or to work with our youth or our preschoolers. Whatever God's saying to you, we have just a simple chest that we want you to put those cards back in. And we've had a number of people that are serving already in places, security team and others that put their cards in this morning. Pick up a card if you need to. Pray over it and say, Lord, I'm putting my yes on the table. Our time of